0: text for this morning's sermon is First Samuel 14, 1-46. If you want to turn to First Samuel 14, you might remember that we ended chapter 13 last week with uh, countless Philistines and uh, only numbered Israelites. And uh, Samuel, representing the Word of God, walking away uh, from this scenario. So we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 14. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibea, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozaz, and the name of the other, Seneh. The one crag rose on the north in the front of McMash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, "'Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few.' And his armor-bearer said to him, "'Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul.'" Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about twenty men within, as if it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gebeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude were dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who is gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the Ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid on an oath, laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil, their enemies, that they found. For now the defeat of the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day at Mikmash to Ahelon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people, and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep, and slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning. Until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For the Lord lives who saves Israel. Though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thumen. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place.
1: We're making uh, Scott earn his paycheck this Sunday. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, through Your Word You'll create faith in our hearts, a greater faith than that from which we came in here with. Father, if there's someone here that has never trusted You as their Savior, that they may see what You're lying and see the glory of Christ even in this story. Lord, I pray that... uh, your Holy Spirit would help me and that Your Word would strengthen us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. One of the key elements we're going to look at today is on the topic of faith. Faith is a word that we hear often it's a common word in our culture. After a football game, a quarterback will be uh, interviewed about the game and if he threw a touchdown pass in the corner of the end zone, he, may, he might say something like, well, I had faith in my receiver. I just put the ball up. I had faith he was going to make a big play. And we hear stuff like that And when we're listening, you know, it brings a little bit of honor to the receiver. But none of us are really shocked with that sort of faith. But if you were to interview uh, a couple who uh, in the circus does the high wire act or does trapeze, and a woman's flipping through the air and her husband are her partner grabs her and she does an interview and she talks about the faith she has in her husband, we begin to be a little bit more impressed. Now, why is that? Well, in the football game, a game might be lost or a pass might be dropped, but there's no real skin in the game really for the quarterback, not not in a life or death way. But when someone's faith has is faith where their own life is in the balance, now, the one in whom they have faith in is honored that much more. Now, all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is talking about faith all the time. And most of the time, He's saying things like this. Oh, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Or he says things like, but if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, do not be anxious. And how about... When Jesus speaks of returning again, one of the saddest statements in the New Testament in Luke 18.8, He says, I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth. Jesus is saying, right after he gives a parable of a woman who keeps pleading with a ruler to give her justice and and in a sense teaching that we ought to be pleading with God, that He's our only hope. We ought to be pleading in prayer. And he says, yet when I return, will there be any faith left on the earth in me? Faith. Faith is hard to come by. In fact, even the disciples said things where they asked God to help their faith. Luke 17, 5 and 6, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. You keep telling us we have little faith. Increase our faith. They knew that God was one of the key elements of an increased faith. This comforting, We have these com- comforting words that Jesus tells Peter in Luke 22. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You see, the New Testament links faith to God working to help us keep our faith. First Peter 1.5 says, who by God's power are being kept, are being guarded through faith for a, a salvation ready to be revealed. God is preserving us in faith. He's strengthening our faith. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. And the key to faith in the New Testament is not so much the faith that resides in a person, but that supernatural created faith in a heart that trusts in God. You see, it's never this amazing faith that's the key. It's the faith in an amazing God. And we see this in these last two chapters, in last week's chapter and this chapter, and in the chapters to come, we get supernatural faith before us and we get to examine it and the beauty of it and we get to ask ourselves key questions about our life. I don't know what type of burdens you walked in here with this morning. I don't know how you would describe your faith whether it's a faith to brag about whether you already know jesus would say oh you of little faith but my prayer is that god's word will strengthen you this morning because faith comes by hearing and that comes from the Word of God and that's why I love studying the Word of God and preaching the Word of God because I know you all are like me constantly needing our faith to be strengthened. Let's just quickly recap what we went through last week because it... Is the context of uh, of our story? So if we can pop up the map here. Saul chooses three thousand men. He sends a thousand with Jonathan, and he takes two thousand. He goes to Mikhmash. You can see Mikhmash right there, and Jonathan is in Gibeah with a thousand troops. And Michmash is this key pass. You can kind of see this valley that runs through here. And you can picture like a rocky crag edge here and one here. And Michmash sits right down in there. And this is a key point of travel in the time of Israel. And as Saul is in Michmash and Jonathan is in Gibeah, Jonathan moves in and he takes out the garrison of the Philistines. Now, right in the middle of Israel, there's a military stronghold in Geba. And it causes the Israelites to be uneasy. Remember, the Israelites had to get their uh, plows and their axes sharpened by the Philistines. The Philistines are like a thorn in their flesh. They even set up a military headquarters right in their midst. And Jonathan says, let's go take him out. And he defeats that stronghold. So when you hear garrison, you can picture a stronghold and you can picture a man in charge of that or the stronghold itself. We're not for sure if it's just a man or the actual stronghold. But Jonathan defeats that. Saul sends out a message to all Israel that he is defeated the garrison in Giba. In a sense, he takes honor to himself when actually Jonathan with less troops goes in and wins that battle. And then the Philistines hear of it. And so Saul says, let's all go to Gilgal. You can see Gilgal up there on the top of the screen. Let's all retreat to Gilgal because the Philistines are upset, but they couldn't imagine what happened. Six thousand chariots. They only have three thousand men, men of war right now, ready to fight. Six thousand chariots move into Mikmash. And three thousand, are three thousand chariots, six thousand horsemen. And enough soldiers, it's described as as many as the sand of the seashore. This is absolutely sure destruction. And Saul's looking at his army. All of his troops are wimping out, the great majority, to the point he's only left to a 600. They all go fleeing in different directions. Some even cross the Jordan and leave the Promised Land. Other ones are hiding in in caves and in the crevices of the rocks. And he knows he's not supposed to do anything until Samuel comes, but Samuel's not coming. He's looking at the circumstances and he says, bring me the sacrifice. And he foolishly doesn't wait for Samuel. Samuel shows up rebukes him, says now the Lord is going to choose someone else, a man after his own heart, to lead Israel. And your lineage, your dynasty that was just beginning, will not be. And so you see Saul and Samuel and 600 men. As soon as Samuel walks away, Samuel doesn't do any sacrifices. The text doesn't tell us he did anything. There goes the Word of God walking away and then Saul turns around and starts numbering his men. Starts looking at the circumstances. He numbers 600 men and they flee to Gibeah. And they're hiding out in the mountains. That brings us to chapter 14. And Jonathan in Geba, Saul is somewhere back behind him in a cave, as we'll see in a moment. But they must have been here for quite a while. You know, I remember my brother chasing me with a shoe or with a bat or something. We're getting a little scrum. And I go lock myself in the bathroom. And it's like, (laughs) is he still out there? Is he still upset? How long do I got to stay in here before kind of the wrath subsides? Well, they're hiding in the caves. They're waiting. Some time goes by, but one day, it tells us, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, let's go over the other side of the mountain to the Philistine garrison. And it tells us, but he didn't tell his father he was hanging out in a cave with Phineas's grandson. You remember Phineas, one of the evil sons of Eli? He's hanging out with his grandson. I think the picture here is Saul is hanging out with the faithless in a cave protecting himself. All the while, Jonathan says to his armor-bearer let's you and me walk over that hill go up on that mountainside show ourselves to the Philistines and he says this amazing thing but before we go to this the two names of the rocky crags are bozes and sena or senna Boses means the gleaming one, and Senna means the thorny one." It's just a little bit of irony, since you see a thorny faith or heart, and a gleaming one that just has glory written on it. But look at verse six. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, "Come." Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Nothing, no, I would underline that if I were you. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. You see his reasoning? I'm sure he's already heard from Saul that God has chosen him to destroy Israel's enemies. And his faith rises up and says, does God need a multitude of soldiers to save Israel? Can He not save with two? Let's go. And that faith, you could make a movie about Jonathan. No one's going to the movie of a guy hiding in a cave. There's nothing gleaming about Saul in this passage. But one shines forth. Two shine forth. Jonathan and his armor bear. And they say, we'll go to the other side and we'll wait and see if they'll tell us to come to them or if they'll tell us to stay where we are, in a sense, they're saying, we're going to see what the Lord says. They want to know the Lord's Word on this. And they said, oh, come here. Oh, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their caves. Ha <laughs> You think they're scared of two measly Hebrews that are on one side of the rocky crag? They crawl out. Hey, guys, come here. We want to show you something. And Jonathan says, Yeah, let's go. The Lord's given them into our hands. I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, The Patriot, where one guy can slay people in just a little area. You know, they he's like the ghost with his hatchet, and he can just kill people everywhere. Well, unlike that. Which was highlighting the skill of Mel Gibson in that movie. This is highlighting how the Lord saves because Jonathan goes over. They all, 20 men fall before him. They slay him with the sword. Remember, there's only two swords in Israel, we find out in, in uh, chapter 13. Saul has one and Jonathan has one and he goes and within a small area 20 men lie dead and we read in verse 15 and there was panic in the camp in the field among the people the garrison the garrison and even the raiders trembled the earthquake and it became a very great panic as God supernaturally takes over on behalf of Israel. Now, I've split this passage into three sections you can see in your notes. I want to point out two charges, or I want to give you two charges from these first 15 verses. First of all, the first charge is this, put on display the shocking Beauty of supernatural faith. Both by Jonathan and by his armor bearer. Isn't it amazing? I'll, I'll do whatever you say. Whatever in your heart. My heart is with you. Jonathan turns into this for David in just a few chapters. But you see the shocking Self-sacrificial faith on behalf of Israel that ignores the circumstances and gazes upon God. And it displays not so much Jonathan's faith because we know no one could do that unless God is working this sort of faith. And the faith highlights the God in which He believes in. It's a self-sacrificial picture of two men taking on the enemies for the people, which obviously is a small picture pointing forward to Christ. But how is God... Asking you to exercise this kind of self-sacrificial faith? That's the question I want you to consider. In your life, how is God asking you to display your trust in your God which would cause people to say, I didn't know. Their God was like, that. That is shocking. That is amazing. Secondly, do not hide yourself in faithless fear. Saul is the counterpitcher. He's hiding in a cave Jonathan is a first-hand participant of the glory of God. Through his life, God is being lifted up. He has a front row seat. He's displaying self-sacrificial love that a leader should be displaying. You know, in a sense, this is Jesus' sermon when He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is what Jesus Christ has called His followers to do. Let your light stand out and shine in a world of cowards. Self-protecting cowards. In your flesh, you will be hiding in the deepest cave and you'll put your watchman out front and you'll have the Ark of the Covenant and you'll have the priests, and you'll be trying to do voodoo with it to protect yourself in your flesh most naturally. But not Jonathan, who had his eyes not on his circumstances, but on the God of Israel. The second section, I have entitled the Lord's salvation. Because at the end of this section, verse 23, it says, so the Lord saved Israel that day. Look in verse 16. Saul's watchmen saw they were dispersing in all directions. He's in the cave. His watchmen are out. All of a sudden, they're scattering. What does Saul do? Something's happening. What's going on? Who started this? Let's count the people. We've seen this before. And so he counts and he finds out that his son is gone and his armor bearer. And I wonder if Saul thought, of course he is. I mean, he's already fought one of my battles. Now he's gone again. And right away Saul says to Ahijah, Bring me the ark. You know, hurry up, bring me the ark. And look at verse 19. Now while Saul there the I mean, sometimes the Bible just make, should make us laugh or chuckle. There's irony here. Now, while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. <laughs> see ya? While their leader is talking to the priest, God is winning salvation for Israel. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. In a sense, he's saying, I'm taking over this situation now. Things have now worked themselves in such a way that, okay, I got this. Let me rise up now. I like the way it's looking. So Saul bravely says, okay, let's go to battle now. 600 troops. Verse 20 tells us that every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. There is a great confusion. In verse 21, we see the Hebrew traitors that have decided to become part of the Philistines because they realized they were more powerful. They even start to fight against the Philistines. The cowardly soldiers that went into the crevices of the rocks all come out and they start to fight. And this section is entitled, The Lord's Salvation. There is nothing about man here that is winning this battle for Israel. So, what can we learn here? First, walk by faith and not by sight. We can be like Saul who is in a cave with his watchman having to assess the situation and see if it's safe. Or we can look to God who is above our circumstances. Who is above the direct realities that cause everyone in their flesh to Tremble. Secondly, humbly fight for the Lord knowing that you are saved by grace. Here's the amazing thing, Saul wins the battle. The cowardly soldiers win the battle. The traitor Hebrews win the battle. They all receive the blessing of this victory. Jonathan is saved by the grace of God. So we fight for the Lord, not as arrogant people confident in our flesh, but confident in the God who shows us so much grace, He gives us His Son. If God is for us, who could be against us? If He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us, how will He not give us all things? That's the reasoning. Why do you get up and fight when it doesn't look like you should fight? Not because you're so great or your circumstances look so good, but because the God of grace is the One whom you're fighting for. And He will never leave you or forsake you. He's the one that has gone to prepare a place for you. And if He's told you so, will He not come again and get you? You're His bride. Is the groom going to forget His bride? Is the groom in heaven forgetting His people? No. That's the one we fight for you always hear people you know i'm a vikings fan evidently the viking fans think they have a great coach the players think they have a great coach and they say we like fighting for coach zimmer well we get to fight for the king of the universe that can defeat huge armies with one sword He can do it with no swords. He can just have their swords turn on each other. I guess he needs their swords there. He could just take their breath. The last section, Saul's rash vow. Now, if you look at these three sections, you might say, well, here's the negative. Here's the negative part of the story. Well, in God's way of doing things, you maybe see the brightest light come out of sinful actions, don't we? When they killed Jesus, this was the worst sin ever committed on this earth. This is the darkest day and it's out of that very circumstance that God uses to save And so we look in verse 24, it says, "...then the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies." The question we need to ask here is, what's Saul pressing for? I mean, he's looking... And he's saying, oh, my people might start eating before they finish the battle. Uh, he, I'm going to take control. Here's the deal. No one eats this day. i got to make sure this battle gets won. So, apart from walking by faith, he makes a rash vow that is going to hurt his very own Son, little does he know. Cursed be the man who eats food. Sure enough, as soon as they walk into the forest, honey's dripping out of the trees, and lo and behold, Jonathan, one of the few soldiers who didn't hear this oath, eats the honey. Then they all... Freaked out and said, what are, you, what are you doing? Don't you know what your father did? Oh no, It's in the text it says the people became faint as they saw what he did. And then Jonathan says, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. The Lord had provided honey for all the soldiers to give them energy, He says. They would have gained strength because of my foolish father and his faithlessness and his worry. He's brought trouble on the land. And it goes on to say that they struck the Israelites from Michmash to Ahalon or Agilon. I don't know. I'll go with how Scott said it. They were faint. And as soon as the sun hits, as soon as the sun goes down, what do the Israelites do? They pounce on the spoil. I mean, they're grabbing animals and they're slaughtering them right there on the ground. They're not taking into consideration how they're supposed to drain the blood properly out of the animals. They're starving partly because of a rash vow. And so man in his flesh, I mean, I can relate to this. I mean, I'll go hunting all day. Myself and three of my buddies. And you can ask Laura. When we walk through the door, we're like pouncing on any food in sight. You're hungry. I can imagine being at battle. And this is what we do in our flesh. We instantly have to feed ourselves with physical food, even though often we struggle to feed ourselves with trusting in God and spiritual food, eating down God's Word. And so the people begin to sin. Saul says, stop this. Tell them to stop. If they want to sacrifice, tell them to bring their sacrifices here. Let's do this right. Let's not sin. See, this is the irony of Saul. He gets some things kind of right, but they're kind of just the religious part of it. And he misses the heart faith part of it and then we read that saul built this first altar and then he says let's go plunder the philistines by night and they say whatever seems good to you but the priest said let us draw near to god are you don't you think we should ask god if we're supposed to go plunder them And so, he separated Israel from himself and asked God, and God doesn't answer him and he says there must be some sin in Israel. He puts himself and Jonathan on this side. He puts Israel over here. And he casts lots with Urim and Thummim. And he finds out the lot is cast for him and Jonathan, So now the sin is residing in them. This is how he's interpreting it. And then he casts lots between the two of them, and then he says to Jonathan, as it falls to Jonathan, "What have you done?" And he tells them that he ate honey. And then Jonathan says this at the end of verse 33, "Here I am, I will die." even though you're a fool, Dad, in your sin, I'll die if it brings help to Israel. And Saul said, God, do so to me, and more also you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall be not one hair of his head to fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Now there is Rich pointing to Christ in these verses. But the first thing I want to point out here is consider the collateral damage of not living by faith. You look at Saul's rash vow. You look at all the people affected. Sometimes we think our sin only hurts us. Our sin never only hurts us. A part, one of the reasons you should wake up and say, Lord, strengthen my faith is not just so you don't tremble, but so the people around you can be blessed by being around someone who is trusting in the Lord and pointing them to His glory. Secondly, see the perfect demonstration of a self-sacrificial faith that saves. I mean, this passage, here I am, I will die. This is so much like Christ standing in the place of sinners. But then it's interesting. The people said, shall our Savior die? No, He's a good man. Let's ransom Him. Let's ransom the good Savior. Isn't this the dilemma when we come to the New Testament? Peter's trying to figure out how their Savior is going to die? You know, what the people did was honorable, but we know from Romans 5 that what Jesus did is just shocking. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died. So Israel ransoms Jonathan who is acting on faith and is the good one. But the shocking thing is, is that Jesus Christ ransoms the ungodly sinners who don't deserve it? Shall our Savior die? Yes, he shall. But he can't remain dead. He works with God. I mean, look at how it, what it says of Jonathan for He has worked with God this day. Did not Jesus Christ do everything His Father commanded? Be obedient to His Father as His Father shows His love for the world as He gives His only Son? And Christ works in perfect obedience. Take this cup from Me, yet not My will, Your will be done. You use Me. Work with Me. Is there any other way to save a people? No then I'll work with my Father to save a people. Jesus has worked with God. He said, I will die for them. But He was not ransomed because He was good, but rather punished for our sins. And then He Himself ransomed not good people, not honorable people, but rather sinners. And one of the most amazing things is Jesus Christ awakens their faith and He awakens our faith. Our God is the same God of Israel. He isn't any less powerful today. You might say, well, I can't have the faith of Jonathan. Oh, really? God didn't bring you into new life, make you born again, put His Spirit within your heart? Will God leave you faithless, Christian? Or will He guard you also? Well, how am I going to be strengthened, though? By His Word. Instead of watching the news all day long, read the Old Testament and find out what your God is is like, I am so thankful that Jesus Christ is my Lord and not one of the five men that debated last night. I tell you, I won't sleep a wink if that's where my hope was coming from. So the final charge, the main message of the sermon is this, You Live your life for Christ or in Christ knowing that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving whether by many or few. You walk by faith, whether it looks like you're the only one or whether there's many, but you shine forth and bring glory to your great God by your trust in Him. Now, Jonathan goes on, to die in battle. Those who trust in God are not promised to win every victory from the world's perspective here. But Jonathan will always be with the Lord, and the Lord only did what was good for Jonathan. Father, I pray that You would help us leave here this morning, strengthened by remembering that You're our God. Lord, there's a thousand worries, a thousand things we could focus on, a thousand circumstances that could cause us to hide away in a cave, to look for pragmatic solutions. God, I pray that our heart would find a peace even in the midst of the storm just by knowing You are our God. Lord, I pray that everyone here would realize that Jesus Christ is their only hope. There's only one way to escape the wrath of God for sins, and that is to go to the One who swallowed up the wrath of God by dying a substitutionary death in our place. That when we trust by Him, Christ's perfect life is given to us so that we can confidently come to You, Lord, in Christ, knowing You're our Father. Thank You for this great salvation, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.